Hello, good day. Welcome to Complex and Beautiful Bodies. I am your host, Reverend Bonnie Gatchel. And we are starting today a six-part series called Sexpectations. And Sexpectations is a series where we're going to unpack or unlearn the expectations around sex, our bodies, sex drive, as prescribed to us by the church, or prescribed to many of us, maybe not everyone, right? And the things that we've learned in church, um, either explicitly or implicitly, that are just not true. They're not true according to scripture, and they're not, they're not true according to our bodies. Um, and I know for myself, I have been hurt by some of these expectations, and I have also participated in hurting others. In particular, I remember a scene from high school, probably my senior year, when um, the youth group went to a, a local amusement park. It was in Ohio. We went to Cedar Point. I don't even know if Cedar Point is still standing. And it's summertime, it's Ohio, you know, the summer in New England and Midwest states is a, a rare gym, a rare window of heat. And so women are walking around, young girls and women are walking around in bikini tops as their shirts, as their whole shirt and then shorts. And I specifically remember uh, boys from my youth group, fellow fellow seniors in high school saying that they should go buy a package of t-shirts from the, the, the gift shop there at Cedar Point and go around and offer the women. And I remember laughing at this. I remember that if we were going to do this, I wanted to participate in that. I wanted to be part of the modesty police. And looking back now, and even just shortly a few years after that, I was disgusted by my behavior, that I participated in that, um, and am a little embarrassed. And yet that came from some place, right? Now, of course, it came from the fact that I was 18, and there was a cute boy that I liked that was part of the youth group trip, and it was his idea and this desire to be liked or have things in common, but I think it also comes from a deeper place, a place that for us who have been raised in the church, and I'll, I'll just stay within my own lane, the evangelical church, um, have been told about ourselves and sex. And it's been called different things over the years. We've called it biblical chastity. We've called it the purity culture in the 70s and 80s, which was kind of started by Billy Graham. Um, we have had ceremonies. We have held ceremonies where we have given young girls, 15, 14, 15, 16 years old, purity rings that they put on their ring finger on their left hand, which is traditionally in America where your wedding band would go. We have taken pledges not to have sex until we were married, we have signed covenants that said, I will not have sex until we're married. Um, we have 
had prayer groups or small groups around re-virginizing. That must be one of my favorites, actually. And so there is this culture or subculture that is part of the evangelical church that has gone on for decades, if not a century. But let's stay within decades, given church structure and uh, small group structure and youth group structure. I also specifically remember being on a youth group, being on a missions trip. I was 18 years old. I was in Mexico, Acapulco, Mexico, on a missions trip with an organization that no longer exists, so I don't need to name them. And there was probably 120 of us and from all over the country. And we went to Mexico and we were doing some community service and some evangelism and some street evangelism. And they gathered us all together, I think probably each night of the trip for devotionals. That I don't remember, but I do remember that they took the opportunity to gather all 120 teenagers who were basically strangers, except for those who maybe did come with people they already knew. We met there in Mexico, and it was just a week-long trip. And they gathered us together. They didn't take into account our backgrounds. They didn't take into account who in the room could be traumatized, who in the room could be pregnant that very moment but just not showing yet, who maybe has already had an abortion, whatever was taking place. And a man from the front of the room discussed with us our bodies. And he pulled out a box of chocolate and he said, let's, you know, let's pretend we were to pass this chocolate around. And he chose at random a piece of chocolate and he bit into it and then he spit, spit it out or swallowed it. That part I don't remember, but he put the bit piece of chocolate back into the box because from his, and he made the analogy, this coconut, he doesn't like coconut chocolate. And then he made the analogy that this is what happens when you sample other people, meaning when you have sex, I mean, he spelled this out. When you have sex with someone, or even he went as far as to say just dating someone, which is a whole nother thing for us to unpack. And then you realize it's, it's not who you want to be with for the rest of your life that what you've done is now you've bitten into someone else's chocolate because someone else out there loves coconut-filled chocolate. That is absurd. That is disgusting. And I bet you right now, anyone who's listening to this has a story of equivalence, either being told that we are a rose and that if we sleep with one another, we're taking each other's petals whatever it might be. And I want to tell you that later in this series, the one whole episode is going to be your questions, your questions, your concerns, your comments, your testimonies around what it feels like to break free from the purity culture. And what does it mean to step into instead biblical truth around sex? So let's, let's look at this. I'm going to unpack five myths taught explicitly or implicitly by the evangelical church over the last 50 years, right? And still being taught. 
These are not the only myths around sex and our bodies. These are just the ones I think are the most potent, the most dangerous, um, the ones that have caused me some personal harm and have really led to shame in many people's lives around our bodies. Our genitals were created by God, the same as any other part of us. Um, and so the five myths that I want us to look at is myth number, myth number one, which we will get to today, is women are primarily seeking emotions, whereas men are only seeking sex and do not desire emotional connection. So let me repeat that myth. Myth number one, women are primarily seeking emotion. They do not lust or want sex as much as men. Men are on, only want sex and not emotional connection. So that's myth, that's a myth, myth number one. Another myth that we're gonna unpack in this series is if you wait until marriage to have sex, it will be awesome. It will be great. That's another myth. A third myth is what a woman wears conveys her sexual availability. Okay, another myth. Uh, a fourth myth is sex is private with no consequence to the community. That's a fourth myth. And the last myth that we're going to unpack is arousal is a sin. That's the myth. And we're going to replace these myths instead with biblical principles. So let's start with our first myth. Women are primarily seeking emotions. They do not lust, whereas men only want sex and cannot control themselves or have little control over themselves. And the biblical principle that I want us to replace that myth with is God has given the fruits of the spirit to all who follow him, according to Galatians 5:22 through 23. And these fruits include self-control. God has given sex and genitals and a desire to both male and female. This is found in Genesis 1:26 and 2 Corinthians 5:14, which we'll get into in a little bit. So where does this myth come from? Do you resonate with this myth? Have you heard some kind of form of this myth when you are outraged at a MALE's behavior? Do you hear back from fellow churchgoers, ah, boys will be boys, right? Um, do you hear excuses for men who are addicted to pornography or who have had affairs, right? There is a quick, a quickness, which is, this is a different topic, but a quickness to redeem marriages even after the spouse, in particular men, have had affairs. 
Um, there's also an idea to blame the woman. Oh, you must not be satisfying your man or he wouldn't need to cheat. These are all versions of um, men only want sex and not emotional connection, right? And women, women only desire, primarily are seeking emotional connection, they do not lust. So where do these myths come from, these ones in particular? Well, first I would say, just historically, we, um, our history, the evangelical church history, we base our traditions, we base our life, we base the trajectory of the church, how we want to live, how we want to raise our families on the Bible. And I believe the Bible to be the word of God, fully breathing word of God. I believe every word of the Bible to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, to be co-authored by God, to be the living and acting, active word of God, right? And I know that might be a little outdated view or more traditional, but I can't live any other way. The Bible tells me who God is and tells me his redemptive story and tells me how to love my neighbor and how to protect my children and how to protect my finances and just simply all in who Jesus is, who God was when he came in flesh, which is Jesus. And so I believe God in his wisdom, God in his sovereignty, chose the culture that he chose to write the Bible in for whatever reason. He chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to represent his people. He chose Bedouins living in the desert for the most place, most part. He chose messed up kings, um, and some amazing foreigners. And then in the New Testament, right, he chose both Jew and Gentile disciples um, and Greeks and women to follow him and to be his example. I don't know why God chose the time period that he did to reveal himself, nor the culture. I would have to say as a very basic answer is that we as humans needed the written word of God as soon as possible. Now, that is not, that is certainly not the full or any depth of theological answer. But, so, but with that being said, no culture was going to be perfect enough for revealing scripture, for revealing God's redemptive story, God's redemptive promise with a capital P, as well as his promises um, to and for his people. And in scripture, our patriarchs, they're the word patriarchy, right? Our scripture is filled with patriarchy. Abraham had a wife and a mistress, right? He tried to take things in his own hands and he slept with Hagar to produce his seed. David had multiple wives, multiple mistresses, and he even takes Uriah's wife as his own, right? And he is King David, the lineage of Jesus, 
we have Solomon who had thousands of wives and mistresses and our mistresses and we could go on and it's not like it's only these men who had right wives multiple wives and multiple mistresses and or multiple mistresses it's it would have ran throughout the whole tribe of Israel right and so patriarchy part of the reason this myth exists that men will be men and that they can't have self-control is patriarchy and that women don't lust, right? And patriarchy that makes up part of our evangelical narrative. And I think there's also a misinterpretation of patriarchy. I've heard in my life that God allowed, right? I grew up in the church and I heard from the front of the room, from the pulpit, that God allowed men to have multiple wives or wives and mistresses for this particular time period, but that is not true. From the very beginning in Genesis 1, God calls male and female to cling to one another. He says that men should leave their families and cling to their wives singular a man should leave his family and cling to his wife right he is not god is not happy at all he does not put his stamp of approval on abraham's plan to sleep with hagar and so there is and then when he gives to moses the ten commandments he says that we should not covet our neighbor's wife so all along the way, God intended male and female to be in one unit, right? In a covenant. If you are married, you are married to one person. You have one partner, right? You don't have multiples. But that's how God interacts with us. Yes, plurally, we are his bride, but he makes a covenant. He is faithful to us. The other reason that this myth has come along is because of a, a misinterpretation of a couple of texts. Well, actually a handful of texts, but we will only actually be able to dig, have time to dig into one. Um, the two texts I wanna mention that are misinterpreted over and over and over again and then lead to abuse of power, lead to myths like this, is the Genesis 1, 26 through 29 and Genesis chapter two, as well as Ephesians 5, 21. So in, in all of these examples of the text, we spend a lot of time focusing on our differences. We spend a lot of time focusing on texts that say, women are the weaker vessel, or women should be silent in church, or I do not permit a woman to teach in church. Um, and we spend, so we spend a lot of time on those texts and exploring what does it mean and looking at our differences as male and female. And I do think we're different, right? I have ovaries and a uterus and a vagina and breast and men have a penis and testicles and testosterone. And we um, psychologically, females by and large experience depression and grief and trauma differently than males 
experience grief and trauma and then our steps to recover are different. So I'm not saying we're not different, but let's also look at how we're the same. So in Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter one, the very first chapter of all of scripture, which is God breathed, in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, it says, God said, let us make humans in our image and in our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all creeping things. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, God's created all the living creatures. Uh, he's created the sun and the moon. He's created fish and he's created broccoli and he's created, you know, fleas. I don't know why. And each after its own kind, right? Livestock after livestock kind, fish after fish kind. Um, but humans, in verse 26, break the mold. God says, let us make humans in our image. And the word for human here in verse 26 is the word Adam, transliterated A-D-O-M. And the word Adam is in the plural form, meaning it encompasses both male and female. In fact, Eve is not called Eve until after the fall. And so Adam, let us make Adam in our own, in the image of God, both male and female, he created them. So in this beautiful moment, God says, Adam, meet Adam. And then we go on and we read in verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And the idea of being fruitful and multiplying is to have sex, according to what's given here in Genesis 1. To have sex, to create more image bearers. So sex is not a dirty word. Sex did not come about after the fall as a backup plan, right? Sex was created by God, given to Adam, as a way to make more image bearers and to have sex as given by God to his image bearers, the female must open herself, right? Or has the opportunity to open herself, which is quite vulnerable, quite intimate and allow the man to come into her also intimate as he allows the woman to encompass him. And so I don't want to go too crazy here, but I just want you to hear that. And just the, the messiness of that and the beauty of that and the vulnerability. And sex is one of the most intimate human forms, like most intimate form humanity, right? It's not the only one but it's fairly intimate, right? It's fairly vulnerable. And so in, for that reason and for the reason that God created them both male and female in his image, instantly made equal, right? And then God gives them this promise and this command and a way to create more image bearers before 
the fall says to me that there is something beautiful and desiring about our bodies that are not, it's not wrong, it's not fallen, uh, it's not our flesh working against us, it is beautiful. And it says to me, a dom male and a dom female both have the ability to have self-control. Both have the ability to be vulnerable. Both desire the other. Sometimes in marriage, we don't desire each other at equal times. Sometimes in marriage, one person is suffering from depression or a season of work that is taking them away from their family, but that does not mean there is a, a permanent lack of desire, right? And Paul even says that we shouldn't withhold sex from one another except for out of mutual agreement for a time of se a season, which means temporal, a season of fasting. And if, God, if Paul has to tell people not to withhold, and he's speaking to both men and women, then it means both men and women were withholding from their spouse, which means both men and women have the ability to have restraint, right? So I'm unpacking here now a little bit of how this is not true. Where else does this come from, though? The Ephesians passage, which... I actually only have a little bit of time to get into. I do want to say quickly that through patriarchy and through the fact that scripture was written in the Middle East and in a culture that is not known to many of us, especially as more time goes on, not many of us are Bedouins living in the desert, but I just want to say historically and currently that shepherds are most often little girls. Uh, one, little girls are considered expendable, right? Two, Zipporah and her sisters, that's what they're doing when they meet Moses. They're out tending sheep. Leah, that's where she's at when she meets her husband, that she's out tending her father's sheep. Um, and then I know David is most certainly not female, but he's only nine years old, right? He's this rowdy, chubby kid tending to the sheep because he's expendable because he was the youngest of many sons. Um, and so that gets overshadowed. And I just want to point that out because I think the third part here, the third reason that this happens is that it's easy when you are the most powerful, when you are more powerful than other people in the room, physically um, more stronger, there's more of you, whatever it might be, it is easy to abuse power. And I think anyone in leadership would know that that is true. And if we were honest, we would say, we have abused at some point or another our staff or a sibling or sometimes ourselves by working all the time and not taking Sabbath. And so what does this have to do with sex? I'm glad that you asked. Well, if we hold men, M-A-L-E's, as the bar, as the standard, as the ultimate authority in any room, then of course we are going to hold them 
as the ultimate authority, as the standard in the bedroom. And it's easy or it can feel threatening in return to think about women lusting the same way as men lust or with the same desire. It can feel threatening because we want over time, the evangelical church, we've wanted men to have that authority, right? Even in the bedroom and for women to be submissive and there can feel this tension if women desire sex like men do. But again, that's what scripture points to, that women do desire sex, that women have body parts made by God that desire a certain type of fulfillment. And they did a study at Gordon College a few years ago now, probably, probably about eight years ago, but they did a study at Gordon College uh, with women who claimed to be evangelical Christians and they found that women at Gordon College masturbated 6% higher than the average public. Now, there might be a reason for that. If they're holding out, if they're waiting till marriage, then you might be masturbating more, but it shows a desire, right? A desire. And I think when we promote these lies that men can't control themselves and they just want sex and women just one emotional connection, we do a disservice to both genders, right? We're treating men like animals and women as less than they've been created. And that is not God's desire. God's desire is for men to show self-control, for women to show self-control, and for men and women to find a mutual partner to give themselves to to experience that intimacy here on earth. I think it also breeds shame. If we don't start talking about how women lust, who are they gonna share that with? They're gonna keep it within themselves. And I, I don't have time to talk about some of the stories I've heard from my fellow female seminarians of not feeling free to express their lust, to express their desire, to even talk about it, right? Until they were 26 years old and um, a guest speaker talked about how women lust, right? And gave biblical background. And so there's this shame, because if I lust, I'm a female, I lust, but I don't think that women do lust. I don't think that women should lust. I've been taught by the church that we don't then I have this shame because I must be messed up. I must be the weirdo in the bunch. And then shame breeds all sorts of things, dehabilitating thoughts. Um, it's been proven that shame makes us less healthy, physically healthy. And so I want us, so what do we do from here? Now that we've looked at this one myth and the biblical truth, the biblical principle is that God has given sex and the desire for sex to both women and men and the ability to show restraint to both women and men. That is the biblical principle. So what do we do from here is we start teaching that biblical principle 
to men and women in our churches. We stop making excuses for men who have affairs and men to go to strip clubs and men who look at pornography, men who sexually abuse or harass girls in the youth group or women at church by saying, oh, boys will be boys, right? We respect our men enough to hold them to the same accountability line as women. And we hold women and men to a line that was actually established by God, not something that we put in place out of fear, out of desire to control women. Um, that's, that's what I got for you. I think some books that I'm drawing from, if you're interested, is Lauren Winner's book. She is a professor at Duke University. She wrote a book called Real Sex. It's pretty good, pretty straightforward. Uh, Dan Allender, who is a professor and a psychologist and expert in trauma, especially around sex trauma, um, out in Seattle at the Seattle School of Theology. He wrote a book called God Loves Sex. Those are two good ones. Um, and like I said, coming up in our final episode of this, of this series, I'm gonna be taking some Q&A. What we're gonna have you do is you can email your questions, your thoughts, your comments to info at lovedbyroot1.org. All of it all spelled out, all lowercase and root like the highway, R-O-U-T-E. So info at lovedbyroot1.org. Thank you so much for chiming in. I look forward to being with you next week when we're going to talk about the myth, if you wait until marriage to have sex, it will be great. That is the myth. And we're going to talk about that next week. And we're going to talk about that next week and then talk about the biblical truth the biblical principle, we live as coveted people, not for the payoff, but because we love God and trust his direction. Thank you very much. Have a great day.